Let's go to prayer now as we begin our time together. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for this season. And as we continue in this season of anticipation and we approach um, the time where we recognize and celebrate your birth, we pray that you would help us to continue to maintain our focus upon you during this season. Um, There are so many things demanding our attention and crying for our time, whether that be the activities or um, the family events or whatever it might be. And so, Lord, I pray that as we even approach the text this morning, you would help us to remove those distractions from our mind and help us to focus single-mindedly upon you and upon the purpose of this season. So we thank you for Christmas and what you've accomplished. Father, we are just in awe of the salvation that you've provided for us. And as we look at it anew today, help us to see it with fresh eyes and to appreciate what you've accomplished for your people. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, naming children can be a difficult task, and you don't have to look any farther than my wife's family to see that that is true. Her grandfather is named Richard Allen, Richard Robert Allen, and he was a part of a very large family. He was the last child born to a very large family. The family was so large that he is actually closer in age to some of his nephews and nieces, so his Uh, His brother's children are closer in age to him than his his actual brothers. He was so far uh, later in life than his brothers that his parents actually just punted on giving him a name. They said, we're really done with this, or this is how the story goes. We're really tired of coming up with names for all of these children. And so they actually assigned his sisters-in-law, so his brother's wives, to give him a name. And so the way the story goes is they named him Robert Richard Allen. But somewhere in the communication between them and the birth certificate office, those wires got crossed, and he ended up being named Richard Robert Allen. And that was his name um, for all of his life. But at least he had a name on his birth certificate. Because on Leanna's grandmother's side of the family, her great aunt came home from the hospital without a name. Their last name was Miracle. And so for the longest time, her birth certificate only said baby miracle or miracle, if you were the Kentucky backwoods branch of the family that they they got to know later in life. Um, So eventually they got that straightened out and her name was, was Carolyn. But naming children would be much easier. It would be much easier if the Lord would just send an angel every time, wouldn't it? We would avoid all of that drama, all of that stress, right? The angel could just come and say, this is what you're going to name your child. Or, or if handwriting appeared on the wall and said, you're going to name your child this, right? It would be that much easier. But there's a problem with that. The problem is that's really rare. In fact, it only happens a handful of times in Scripture, and we are looking at the most prominent times where that happens. Isaac is one of the only other um, babies who was named by the Lord at birth. The Lord changes lots of people's names. He changes lots of people's names after a significant event in their life, but there are very few children that the Lord says from birth, this is going to be your name. And John the Baptist and Jesus have that high status where they are given their name at birth. And so as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to see the naming of John the Baptist and some of the things we have to learn from that. But our primary focus this morning is going to be on Zachariah's hymn of praise after John was born. And, and the Latin term for this passage is the Benedictus. And so we're going to be looking at that, that song and that hymn of praise that Zachariah gives after the birth of his son. 
And our theme, as we look at this passage, is going to be that God deserves our praise. God deserves our praise at Christmas because of the salvation that He bought for us. God is worthy of your praise, and especially worthy of your praise at Christmas, the salvation that He purchased for His people. So, with that, let's jump in in verse 57 of chapter 1. Luke 1, verse 57. Now, the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth. And she gave birth to a son, and her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zechariah after his father. And yet his mother responded and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, There's no one among your relatives who is called by this name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet, and he wrote as follows, His name is John. And they were all amazed. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue freed, and he began speaking in praise of God. And fear came on all those who lived around them, and all these matters being talked about in the entire hill country of Judea. And all who heard them kept in mind the saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For indeed the hand of the Lord is with him. So it appears that during Elizabeth's pregnancy, she remained in seclusion. And so that when she, was, when she gave birth to John, it was actually a surprise. Much of the community was surprised by the fact that she bore a son. And so the result of that surprise was rejoicing. The community gathered around her and they rejoiced that she had been able to bear this miraculous son, that she had had a baby. And so it's interesting to notice the contrast between John's birth and Jesus' birth. Because we all know Jesus' birth was incredibly isolated, right? The people who witnessed that birth were just the animals or the livestock that were in the stable. But here, John's birth is witnessed by the whole community. And there's this rejoicing over the fact that this happened. And that further highlights the fact that of the humility that Jesus had as he came into birth. Based on the people who knew, we would expect that John were the more significant baby who was born in these stories. But in fact, we know that it's Jesus. Jesus is the significant one who was born, even though John has the recognition of the community here. And so they deal with the task of what to name him. And we know that the angel has already told Zechariah in the temple that his name will be John, which means God's gracious gift, right? An incredible picture of who John would be in his ministry on this earth. And so Elizabeth um, says very strongly, that his name will be John. It's, it's an imperatival force to the phrase she's saying. He will, I command that he be named John is basically what she's saying. And yet the community at large says, no, that's not really a good name. We really think you ought to go with, with Zachariah. Now that's supposed to be funny. <laughs> this is a really funny story. I mean, could you imagine that? Could you imagine if you brought your baby home and you said, yeah, we've named him, I don't know, Hepzibub. And, and the community at large said, yeah, that's terrible. I'm sorry. You're not allowed to go with that name. Let's stick with Anna or something like that, right? I mean, that's terrible. It's really funny that this is how the community responded. We really don't like the name you picked. We're going to supply a different run. And so they go to Zechariah, and they expect that with Zechariah, he's going to support the community's position, not Elizabeth's, because it was the custom. It was normal and expected that a child would be named after someone within their family. 
that you would carry on a family tradition and communicate honor to your family members by naming your child after them. That was what was normal and expected during that time. Now, Zachariah not only can't speak during this time, he also is deaf. He cannot hear. So he has not heard the conversation that has happened between Elizabeth and the community at large. And so when he says his name is John, everyone gasps because he didn't hear anything they just said. And just by chance, he happened to pick the exact same name that his wife indicated as well. Coincidence? I think not. Obviously, this is the hand of the Lord at work in this situation, and the community at large finally recognizes that that's what's going on. But notice how uh, Zechariah phrases his title. His name is John. It's already John. It's almost like, I don't care what you name him. In the Lord's eyes, his name is John, and that's all that matters. The Lord knows that this person is John, and I don't care what, what you people decide, but his name is going to be John. And so at that moment, Zachariah's lips are unsealed, and he can speak once again. And so I, I know it's a rather humorous story, or, or I find it humorous. Maybe that's just my, my weird pastor humor, but I think this is hilarious. Um, but I know it's a humorous story, but it communicates a very serious point, doesn't it? Because for Elizabeth and Zechariah, where do they turn for truth? Where do they turn for a guide for their behavior and their decision-making? They don't look to the community. They don't look for others to provide that sense of truth. The Lord has spoken, and because the Lord has spoken, that determines their decision. And so they don't care what the community says. They don't care what's popular. They don't care what their friends say. What matters to them is what the Lord has said. And so even in something as insignificant as what they name their child, they are adhering to what the Lord told them to do. And they want to be found obedient in His sight and following His Word. And, and you and I have lots of pressures on us in this culture. We have lots of things appealing to be our standard of truth in our lives. But we have the Word of God that we can always appeal to as His spoken Word for our standard of truth, our guide for what we ought to do. And in Zechariah and Elizabeth, we see a great example of how we follow the spoken Word of the Lord, even when there are other things calling for our attention and calling for our obedience. And so, Zechariah's lips are open. He's able to speak again. And notice what he does. Verse 64, and once his mouth was opened and his tongue was freed, he began speaking in praise to God. Speaking in praise to God. Isn't that a wonderful description? He'd gone nine months without speaking. Now, some of us can't go nine minutes without speaking, much less nine months without speaking, right? And so he's gone nine months without saying a single word. Can you imagine that? And then the first thing that he says, the first words that were on his lips are praise to his God. Isn't that amazing? You think about the things he could have said, all of the things he may have wanted to say all those nine months long, right? Like, honey, you've been taking the trash out wrong. I tried to tell you, but you didn't listen, right? All of those things he could have said, but the first thing on his mind was giving praise to our God. He wasn't bitter. He wasn't angry at the Lord. 
But that time of silence and reflection and meditation on who his God was caused him to come out of this season giving praise to the Lord. Isn't that amazing? When I think about my own life, I'm guilty not just of my first words not being praised to the Lord, but maybe any words throughout my day being in praise to the Lord, right? How would our lives look different if, if the first words that we spoke, the, the most important words and, and the most words that we spoke were in praise of the Lord? Now, if you're looking for things to praise the Lord about, this passage is full of it, and we're going to get into that in just a minute. So after that description of Zechariah praising the Lord, then we see the content of his praise. Pick up with verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, would serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Now, as I said, that section, verse 68 to 75, is called the Benedictus, and that's the Latin term for the Greek phrase that begins this hymn. Our Bibles translate it, blessed be. But you also could translate that praise, praise to the Lord. We praise the Lord for these things. Blessed be God, or I'm praising God because of these things. The Apostle Paul picks up on this phrase throughout all of his letters. As you know, he begins many of his letters with the phrase, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes through a list of things that God has done that we should praise him for. And so it's a similar thing here. We, we can praise God. We can bless him for all of these things that are coming. Now, I want to just pause for a moment, and we've talked about this a little bit already, but I want to give you this challenge. How many of you spend any time during this Christmas season actually in praise to God? This Christmas season is full of many things, isn't it? It's full of family activities. It's full of gift giving. It's, it's full of cookie baking and, and all sorts of things. But what Christmas should be about at its absolute core is praise to our God. That's what this entire season is made for. And, and we are masters at creating meaningless activity in a season that should be the most significant activity of all. We fill this season with meaningless platitudes and sentimentalities, when in reality what this season is about should be praise to our God. We've talked about this illustration often, but C.S. Lewis says that, that as humans, we are much too easily entertained. That's our problem. We are too easily content with lesser things. He shares a picture of a child playing in the mud puddle and making mud pies for a meal, when in reality he could be sitting at a banquet table eating a feast. And that's what we are like. We are content to deal with the meaningless platitudes and sentimentalities of this life when what is available to us is praising the king of this universe. And that's what Christmas is all about. It's an opportunity to recognize once and for all, par excellence, the victory that God has had over this world. And we're going to get into the details of that as we go through. 
For he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. That's the first thing that Zechariah wants us to praise the Lord for. Now, when you think about this idea of visit, it doesn't mean visiting someone for a casual chat, taking a plate of cookies or something of that nature. This term has the idea of when we go for a doctor visit, right? When you go for a doctor visit, what kind of visit is that? You're not catching up on the score of the football game, or you're not chit-chatting about little things. You're going there for help, right? You've scheduled a doctor visit because you need help, and you're going to the doctor to get that help. That's exactly the idea of this phrase. He has visited us to help us, to give us assistance. He has seen our need, and he has come to us. That's a wonderful picture when we think about the beauty of the incarnation, right? God didn't just visit us in in some sort of metaphysical way. God visited us by taking on human flesh and coming and dwelling among us and walking among us on this earth and accomplishing that salvation. That's the kind of visit we celebrate this Christmas. Isn't that amazing? But what did he do during that visit? He accomplished our redemption. Now, redemption is a theme that we talked about all through Exodus. Do you remember when we talked about the firstborn? And the fact that we had to redeem the firstborn. And what did that mean? The firstborn belonged to God, right? And if you wanted the firstborn to be a part of your family, you had to buy them back. You had to redeem them from the Lord. That's what redeem means. It means to buy back, to pay off a debt. Well, that idea of the redemption of the firstborn gets flipped on its head. Because all of us are redeemed by God. God paid the debt that all of us had accrued. You and I had a debt of sin, a debt that we could not pay off, a debt that was impossible for us to ever meet. And God, through his Son, accomplished our redemption. He paid the debt that we had accrued because of our sin and accomplished that redemption. Now, I believe that here Zechariah is speaking of things that he doesn't fully comprehend yet. He doesn't understand that that Mary's son, Jesus, will be the Messiah who will accomplish that redemption. I think that that's probably beyond his understanding at this moment. But as you and I look back on this prophecy, we see the beautiful fulfillment of that phrase. Jesus is our redemption. He has purchased us back with his blood. That is how he has paid for our debt, a debt that we could never repay. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. This phrase, horn of salvation, is a phrase of strength. When, when in biblical language they speak of a horn, it's not a trumpet or some sort of instrument. It means the horns on an animal, the horns on a bull or an ox or something of that nature. And there's other animals that are perhaps more dangerous or more ferocious or more fearsome. You think of of a bear, right, or the poison of a snake, something of that nature. But what's communicated when they talk about the horns is strength and power, almost brutality in what is able to be accomplished. Nothing can stop that strength. And so when we think about this being applied to our salvation, it's the power that God has to accomplish the salvation that he has promised. Isn't that an amazing picture? 
So he has raised up this horn of salvation, this, this powerful, strong salvation. And salvation is a key throughout this passage. It's repeated three different times throughout this short prayer. And so that gives us this theme that, that Zechariah is praising God because of this salvation. That's the theme of this passage. And so he has raised up this horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. And, of course, that communicates that messianic overtones of this whole passage, knowing that the Messiah will come from the house and family of David. Just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times, salvation from our enemies. So I love this phrase, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. Isn't that a wonderful picture of how God communicates his truth? We hold in our hands the words of those prophets, But they're not the words of a mere man. They are the words of God that are meant for us to read and understand. And so God speaks his word through the mouth of his prophets and his apostles. And it's from ancient times. And I can't think of a more ancient time than the Garden of Eden. You can't go back much earlier than that. But even in the Garden of Eden, the Messiah is there. That one who will be raised up from the seed of Eve who will crush the head of the serpent. And so God has been speaking about this salvation. He's been speaking about what he's going to do for his people. The redemption and deliverance that he will promise from the Garden of Eden. And now, today, in this passage, we're seeing the fulfillment of it. It has been woven all through the Old Testament and now... We get to the climax of all of this. And what is he promising for his people? Salvation from our enemies. Salvation from our enemies. Now, when you read a phrase like that, it's easy to understand why the nation of Israel was looking for a military or political Messiah, right? Because when we hear enemies, we think our literal physical enemies, the armies that are encamped outside our walls, right? The Roman soldiers who are ruling our nation. We want God to defeat that specific enemy. But God's not content just to defeat one enemy. Because you see, behind every enemy that Israel faces and every enemy that you and I face is the power of sin and death. And God wasn't content in the salvation that he promised just to defeat one enemy to have another one pop up. God was striking at the root. He was destroying the power that gave fruit to every enemy that you and I face or that Israel would face. Behind the Assyrians, behind the Chaldeans, behind every enemy that Israel faced was the power of sin and death. And so when God accomplished salvation for his people... He didn't just cut off one head of the hydra. He destroyed the beast. He killed the power of sin and death. That is what he is promising here. Through his Messiah, through Jesus, the power of sin and death is no more. There's not just one enemy that's been defeated, but sin and death no longer has power because Jesus has conquered them. That's the salvation that we enjoy. Now, is that worthy of praise? Hallelujah! Hallelujah. That's what Christmas is about. We're not here just for music or for cookies. We're here to celebrate the salvation of the world. Jesus has conquered sin and death. And so when we come across our enemy in this world, 
when we come across the atrocities and the evil and the cruelty that comes because of sin and death, we know that we are facing something that doesn't have teeth anymore. And just like a snake that's cut off its head, we still deal with the writhing of that sin, and there is still damage and pain that comes because of that. But it has been defeated once and for all. Because Jesus came, he lived, he died, and he rose from the dead. And those things no longer have power. And so, yes, we can say with Zechariah that we enjoy salvation from our enemies. Praise the Lord. So then he goes on with more of the purpose of this salvation. From the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant and the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. And so there we see the faithfulness of God on display. Just as we talked about it the very first week of our Advent season, the faithfulness of God is what is on display in the Christmas story. He is keeping his word and his promises to his people. And so the faithfulness of God is the reason he has introduced this salvation. But then notice verse 74. To grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, would serve him without fear. I don't want you to miss that point. To grant us that we would serve him without fear. God has accomplished salvation for us. He has conquered sin and death. And the reason he has done that is so that you would serve him. God has not accomplished this. He has not defeated death so that you have an easier life, so that life is more convenient for you, or so that you have a more affluent life. God has conquered sin and death so that you would worship and serve Him alone. That's the purpose of what He has done at Christmas. It is to get your service and worship. Now, it's important that we notice the order. God has not saved us because we serve Him. It's not some sort of reward that he saves us because we have been faithful. He saves us when we were still sinners so that for the purpose of us serving him. So that's the purpose of Christmas, but that's the purpose of of all of our lives, right? So many of us wrestle with what's my purpose in this world? What am I supposed to do here? What's my identity? What's my job? I don't feel fulfilled by what I'm doing. Well, I'll tell you right now, there is nothing more fulfilling than every moment of your day knowing that you live in service to your Lord and your King. That is what you were created to do. You were created to serve Him. And He conquered the power of sin and death so that you could know Him and could serve Him. That's a great purpose, isn't it? That's what we have been called and created to do. Ephesians 2.10 talks about the fact that God has created good works for us to do. Not good works that accomplish our salvation, but good works that are done in response to the salvation that God has given us. Isn't that amazing? So Christmas, at Christmas, we praise the Lord, and we recognize all that He has done for our salvation, but we also serve Him. We have been bought with a price, and it is our job to serve that God and King. And so then that concludes the Benedictus. And then in verse 76 on to the end, um, Zechariah gives a little future look at his child, at John. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation. There's that phrase again. 
by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine on those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And now the child grew and was becoming strong in the spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance in Israel. And so there's much that we see there that's an echo of what we've talked about before. The fact that John would point to the Messiah. He wasn't the Messiah or the chosen one, but he would point to the Messiah. That was the purpose of his ministry. We see the nature of this salvation, that it is a spiritual salvation, salvation that is accomplished by the forgiveness of their sins. So it's not the physical enemies, but it's defeating the power of sin and death. And then we see a wonderful echo of Isaiah 9, from which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine on those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. What a wonderful picture of what the Messiah accomplishes, that he drives away the gloom and the darkness of sin and death and presides the light of his eternal life through his son. That's amazing. Would you join me as we pray and prepare for communion? Father, we do thank you so much for this passage and for the rich truth that is in it. And Lord, we are are so prone to settle for, for sentimentalities and the pleasantries of the season and to miss the fact that what we celebrate during this time is the fact that you are the ultimate victor over sin and death. You haven't conquered just one enemy, but you have conquered them all. You are the greatest power in this universe, and what we see at Christmas is proof of that truth. And so we recognize your power and your strength, and we thank you for it. Thank you that you employed it in order to save us, and would you help us to serve you with the salvation that you have given us. So Lord, we pray now that as we look toward the table, you would help us to quiet our hearts and to focus upon you and the salvation that you've purchased for us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you prepare for communion,